Good morning, everyone. I'm Lucinda, and I'm going to be reading um, the Bible this morning. Before we start, we'll just pray together. Loving God, thank you for Jesus and for your amazing plan. Thank you that Jesus lived a perfect life and died so that we could be forgiven and live. Help us to know that your love for us is always there. You are beside us even in times that are difficult and without direction. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reading today comes from John chapter 12, and that's 1 through to 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that, they, that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Thank you, Lucinda. Good morning, church family. How are we all? 
Good, <laughs> vibrant and excited. That's excellent. Well, let me ask a question. Who watched this? This was the Queen's funeral, the royal funeral. How many people out there? Yeah, that sounds about right. You and four billion other people around the world watched at least part of the Queen's funeral. One in five Australians watched some of it. And it was majestic, wasn't it? It was full of extravagance, pomp, ceremony. And regardless of your view of the monarchy, the Queen was obviously a much-loved royal, and her funeral, it got the full royal treatment, didn't it? She was given a lot of honour in her death. Well, we're going to be looking at another royal death today, but a very different one with a very different response, but in some ways no less extravagant. We're looking at Jesus, our Saviour and our King. And today, I want to break it down into three sections. We're going to be looking at a couple of incidents. We're going to be looking at anointing the King and then we'll be looking at announcing the king and then thinking about what we do in response, worshipping the king. So let's start with anointing the king. Start at the beginning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raid, had raised from the dead. So we're back in John. Were you with us last term? Do you recall what happened in John chapter 11? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead extraordinary. His friend who'd be dead for days, he raised him to life again. And now here they are back at Lazarus's house with a living Lazarus right there with them. Lazarus is alive and Jesus is at his place. And his place, it's in Bethany. There's a couple of Bethanies. This one is right near Jerusalem here and it's handy because Jesus is very soon to enter Jerusalem for the last time before he dies. And here at Bethany, at Lazarus's house, we have a dinner in Jesus' honour. And why not? Jesus was their friend, but now so, so much more. Lazarus and his sisters, they wanted to thank Jesus for the life-changing impact he'd had on their family. Their brother who was dead is now alive. So wouldn't you want to put on a dinner to honour Someone who'd done that to your family? And they did. And at the bottom of their hearts, they wanted to say, thank you, Jesus, we want to honour you for what you've done for us and our family. Picture it. We have a freshly resurrected Lazarus sitting at the table with Jesus. Martha serving the food. And then comes, in comes Mary. Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I want us to imagine us being in that room, being at that dinner party. And so I'm going to engage a sense which we don't normally engage in sermons, well, at least not intentionally, smell. We have a bunch of bowls scattered around the auditorium at the front and back of a lot of the bays. And in those bowls are little bits of card. So please grab the bowls, start passing it around, grab a bit of card each, because on these little bits of card is nard. 
I found some nard or spike nard and it has been impregnated into all sorts of bowls so we can, uh, in all sorts of pieces of cardboard. So we can imagine the smell as we sat in that room, the expensive perfume filling the room. And nard was expensive. It was made from a plant in the Himalayas, this nard, uh, an essential oil and was distilled from the roots It was shipped long distances. So that's why it was so expensive and hard to find. Nard had many uses. It was medicinal. Uh, It was used for perfume, like we're smelling now. It was sometimes used as an incense offering in the Old Testament. And it's it's a smell that really clings to the skin. I mean, I can attest to that, having impregnated all these bits of cardboard with it. Me and my house were smelling of nard for a while. But yes, and so that's why it was often also used in the preparation of bodies for burial, covering the stench of death. So hopefully we're all starting to get a bit of this cardboard now to smell it, take it in, and imagine we were there at that time. I mean, I had all sorts of other plans. I wanted to put it in the air conditioning system or have a squirt bottle, but... I think this is probably the best way to distribute the smell around the room. But we want to imagine we were there in that room with everyone as this smell filled the room. As Mary put it on Jesus' feet and then imagine everyone watching on as this Jewish woman unbinds her hair and starts wiping his feet with her hair. Why why did Jesus pour this on Jesus' feet? Why why did Mary pour this nard on Jesus' feet? Why did she wipe the feet with her hair? Well, we can't be fully sure. But there are some things going on which we can know. This is intensely personal, isn't it? It's an intimate expression of love and devotion. Jewish women didn't unbind their hair in public, but right at this moment, Mary does not care about her dignity. She kneels, takes out her hair, and wipes the feet of the man who raised her brother from the dead. It's it's personal, but it's also extravagant. This perfume, it's expensive. And this bottle, about 500 mils, would have cost a year's wages. If we're thinking about it today, this is a $60,000 bottle of perfume. And she just pours it out. And that's a point that Judas is quick to point out. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor. It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas's ejection here betrays his heart, the heart of a selfish betrayer. Someone who would sell Jesus out for money in less than a week. He was more interested in selling the nard and taking his five-fended cut to line his own pockets. Jesus knows this, and he rebukes Judas. He says, leave her alone. 
It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Burial? This, is, this seems strange coming from a living man, but Jesus knows what's happening and what is about to happen. Jesus knows his destiny. A week later, Jesus would be hung on a cross until dead, dying for us. Jesus knew this was coming. He knew he would die. He knew he would be buried. Buried in a borrowed tomb, covered in strips of linen with spices and oils on them, dead and buried. So in doing this act, Mary, unwittingly or not, is anointing Jesus for his burial. A burial that was to come very soon. But she's not just anointing him for his burial. There is a sense she's anointing Jesus as our king. You see, using oils like this, this was something that happened in the Old Testament. Oil was poured on kings to mark them out as God's chosen king. An anointing was then confirmed with a coronation. But unlike the kings of old, our King Jesus would be crowned with a crown of thorns on a cross, humiliated, and then our king would be buried. And as our king was buried, there was no fancy funeral procession for Jesus. It would be a far cry from the extravagance we saw for Queen Elizabeth II. It'd just be a couple of men taking Jesus' body and laying it to rest. But despite the humble circumstances, it was still a royal burial. A burial that would not be final. Jesus would rise again on the third day to show that he was our true eternal king. Jesus, our true humble servant king. Jesus, king over death. Jesus, king over all creation. Jesus, king over you and me. All of this makes Mary's act here in this room, at this dinner party, even more symbolic. She was anointing a king and anointing a body that was soon to be buried. And like I said, we can't be sure of Mary's motivation, but we can see in it the symbolism that comes with it. We can feel her passion for Jesus, her extravagance, her extravagant devotion to him. We can feel her worship of Jesus in that moment as she is anointing the king. Then we move on to the next incident in the passage that we had in the spotlight announcing the king. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So here we are, Jerusalem, the holy city. We are entering the end game phase with Jesus. He is entering Jerusalem for the last time before he will die. We're going to spend a bunch of time in Jerusalem this term and, and even towards the end of our first term next year. A lot of time because what's happening now is it slows down. The narrative slows down as we focus in on these so, so important events of Jesus' last days and his death and resurrection. 
We're focusing in because this end game starts here. It starts here as he enters Jerusalem for the last time. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem and there's crowds of people, palm branches in their hands. This is the event we celebrate and commemorate on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. It's here in this very public way that the people announce Jesus as the true King of Israel. We've got some things they're shouting out here. Hosanna, which sort of literally means save us, please. And save them, he would, but not how they expected. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, an ancient song praising God for his goodness and love, but a psalm that also looks forward to the coming of a saviour direct from God. And then if those references aren't clear, they say it very clearly. Blessed is the king of Israel. Israel, who had no real king for hundreds of years, now looks to this Jesus to fulfill that role. They announce the coming of the king. But it wasn't like the normal kingly entrance, was it? At the coronation of Elizabeth II, it was all pomp and ceremony. Golden coaches, majestic horses, and dignitaries everywhere. That's going to be the same when Charles is crowned. Lots of wealth, important people, and extraordinary ceremony. And it was the same in the ancient world. Not just with coronations, but the entrance of a king to a city was accompanied with just as much pomp, ceremony, and exhibition of power and wealth. Kings would often come on or behind the most powerful and impressive war horses. But not Jesus. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These are words from the prophet Zechariah, and they were fulfilled in the entrance of Jesus to Jerusalem. Instead of a powerful war horse, Jesus comes in on a lowly donkey. Instead of an audience of the who's who of Jerusalem, Jesus is welcomed by just regular people. And instead of all the trappings of wealth and power, worldly power, Jesus is ushered in to Jerusalem with simple palm branches. Jesus was coming not to bring in his kingdom through might and power, but coming to bring a kingdom of peace. And that would fulfill what Zechariah prophesied. In fact, after he says those words that were referenced there in John, he goes on and says these words, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah is comparing God's king to the kings of the world. The kings of the nations trust in chariots, war horses, weapons. Well, God's promised king would bring peace instead of war. 
and his peace would extend to the ends of the earth. That's something his disciples didn't get at first. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So as these events happened, both these events, Jesus' closest friends, they weren't quite aware of all the symbolism of what was taking place. They would have to wait for Jesus' coronation his glorification, because all of this makes sense in the light of the cross. It's at this point on the cross that Jesus is crowned and shown in his full glory. It is only with the cross, the resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on God's people like you and me that understanding would come. All of these incidents in Jesus' life now make sense. We can now see the anointing. We can see the announcing. And they're all pointing to our king who would provide us all we could ever need at the cross. So is Jesus your king? Is he really your king? I ask you that today. Smell the anointing. See the announcing. And come and bow before your king with us. If Jesus isn't your king and you're feeling led to take that step, we'd love to help you take that step with us. Come and bow before Jesus with us here at Living Church. We'd love to journey with you in that. Come and chat to me, James, someone at the Next Steps guest, or someone you came with. Please, we'd love to help you make Jesus king of your life. And when he is your king, You can worship him as your king. Now, I'm not sure what you call the honour we give Queen Elizabeth II. I'm not sure we'd call it worship. There may be some, but it's not really quite worship. There's a lot of honour, a lot of respect for her, but worship, I'm not sure about that. As for the guy standing next to her, that's another question. Do we really worship our kings and queens? Well, we want to, I want to take us back to Mary in that dinner party, in that room, and focus in on her at the feet of Jesus. Smell the card again. Take yourself back to that place and see the worship that is taking place there. Feel the worship that is happening Worship. Here's a definition from Louis Giglio. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Worship is big and broad. It's a whole of life thing. It's, it's devotion. It's, it is honouring God in so much, everything we do and say. And here in this room with Mary, we are seeing a very personal worship. Like I said, there's a couple of things that really strike me about this. One is the personal, intimate fact of this. Wiping his feet with her hair. Can you see how intimate that is, how personal, embodied that worship is? This this isn't something from a stranger. This is someone who knows Jesus well, knows what he has done 
and loves him deeply. Loves him personally. This act speaks of an intimate relationship. So I ask all of us sitting here today, do you have this sort of personal relationship with Jesus? Are you personally worshipping God? Do you personally know him and know him deeply? We can sit here in churches and go through the motions of Christianity, but Jesus offers us something much deeper than that. He offers us a real and personal relationship with the king of the universe. Do you have that relationship? Have you encountered Jesus in a real and personal way? One that moves you to respond to him in personal worship of him? If not, seek him out. He is waiting for you. The Holy Spirit is waiting to work in your heart to draw you close to a deeply personal Jesus. Seek him in prayer. Ask and the door will be opened to you. So this is personal. But as I said before, it's also extravagant. Like I said, Mary is using perfume worth a year's wages. This is most likely the most expensive thing she owned. And here she is just pouring it out for Jesus in an extravagant act of worship. This this act, it, it wasn't required by the law. There was no one telling her this is what she needed to do. She just did it straight from the heart. She loved Jesus that much. It was a heartfelt response to everything that Jesus had done. And she just wanted to do something, to worship him, to thank him, to honour him. And look, it wasn't even something that was a wise use of resources, was it? It wasn't something that could further the mission of Jesus directly. It wasn't well thought out. It was, it was a totally over-the-top use of this expensive bottle of perfume. This oil was poured out because for her, Jesus was worth it. And Jesus rebukes Judas, who was calling for a more measured use of resources, doesn't he? Because this was a worthy expression of worship, purely to worship Jesus, because he is worth it. He is worth pouring out all of ourselves for, because of everything he's done for us. Now, this sort of extravagance is a challenge for us, again, as we sit here in a conservative Presbyterian church. We're good at being measured and wise in the use of resources, aren't we? Both personally and corporately. We we don't often use our our resources in extravagant ways simply because we love Jesus. So these questions flow to each of us to hear today. Are you willing to be extravagant in your worship of your Lord and King? Are you willing to be undignified? Are you willing to let it all out as you worship Jesus from your heart? Well, what's that going to look like? That can take so many different forms. Let's explore a few. 
I mean, when we say the word worship in modern contemporary churches, we often think of this picture, don't we? It is about praise and worship, singing. And we default to that. And worship is far more than just this. But it's also this. It's how we sing. It's how we honour God with our mouth, our voice. So how do you sing in worship of Jesus? Again, Presbyterians have a reputation of being the chosen frozen, where they have been chosen by Jesus to be his, yet completely frozen in their expression of thanks and praise. So, Presbyterians, are you willing to slip off all dignity like Mary's headscarf and simply worship Jesus because you love him? Oh, there's someone. (laughs) Praise God. That's, that's for us. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing, like Mary, to just worship? And that can take different forms. Now, look, I know not all of us are wired to dance in the aisles, although if you're keen, I'm sure James will join you. So bring it on, he says. But, look, allow this to challenge you, this this passage to challenge you from where you're at. I mean, this has been a personal journey of mine for the past few years. Because when I'm home, by myself, no one around, I'll sing songs with gusto to Jesus in an expressive way. Yet when I come to church, then I start to worry more about what others think than simply worshipping. So I've been on a journey of getting over myself and allowing myself to let my natural expression flow, even when surrounded by all my brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe even because of that. I'm learning to extravagantly praise God in song as an act of worship. What about you? Well, like I said, it's far more than that. How about how we worship Jesus with our money? Do you worship God happily in other ways but then cling tightly to your financial resources? If Jesus is worth everything, then we should freely give to him the things that we value the most, including our money. For Mary, she gave up probably the most expensive thing she owned in a moment of pure worship of Jesus. Are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to sacrifice the potential that your money has to give it to Jesus and his kingdom work? And in fact, in this moment, Jesus says these words, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. He's saying that to Judas, saying, this is, this is right and proper. But that was then. Jesus was bodily present then. His body would soon die, rise again and return to the Father. But what about now as we sit on this side of all that? What's our response to the poor? The poor are still among us, aren't they? I would contend that an extravagant act of worship of Jesus is using your time, money and effort to help the poor. That's an act of worship that God calls us to and honours Jesus as we help those who will probably never be able to repay us. 
Are you willing to be extravagantly generous as an act of worship to Jesus? And then what about time? One of our most precious resources in this time-poor culture, how do you use your time to worship your Lord and Saviour Jesus? Are you willing to give your time extravagantly to God and his people and his mission? If you do, that will be an extravagant act of worship. When the world says, use your time for you, you say, no, I'm going to use it for Jesus. Are you willing to be extravagant in the use of your time? And then there's this man. It's been in the news all week. Does anyone recognise him? Yes, a few nods there. If you haven't been catching up with the news, this is Andrew Thorburn. He was appointed the CEO of the Essendon Bombers AFL team. And then it was discovered that he was also the chairman of a church called City on a Hill, a church that holds to traditional biblical views on sexuality and sanctity of life. And so the pressure came. And he was told to choose by the club your footy or your faith your job or your church. And he chose faith. He chose his church. He chose Jesus. He stood down from his new role as the Bombers CEO 30 hours after taking the job. Now, regardless of what you think of the issues at play, what we can see is a man who is willing to extravagantly stand up for the truth. And it was an act of worship. The mob asked him to choose the bombers or Jesus. And he did not hesitate to choose Jesus. These sort of costly choices, they're going to become increasingly prevalent in a society that is increasingly intolerant of traditional Christian values. So the question for all of us is, are we willing to extravagantly stand up for the truth and for Jesus in a hostile society as an extravagant act of worship? And then just finally, on a personal level, are you willing to be extravagant in your obedience of Jesus? Being a disciple of Jesus is about learning in his word to obey Jesus in all things. Even when your natural instinct might be to do the opposite, Jesus asks you to radically obey him. He is to be your king above all other worldly powers. His instructions are to be like commands to be followed to the best of your ability. His standards are ones you are to uphold and live out. Jesus asks you for your full obedience in all things as an act of worship to him. Because doing these things, I mean, we can't earn our salvation. Jesus is our saviour. We do nothing to deserve that. But he has saved us. And so in response, out of worship, we should choose to obey him as our Lord and King. So are you willing to be extravagantly obedient as an extravagant act of worship. Those are just the start of some examples as you dwell on this story 
I'm sure you can find more. And do dwell on this story. Drink it in. Smell the story. And put yourself in this place and think, how can I worship Jesus personally, extravagantly, because Jesus is worth it. See Mary and go and do likewise because Jesus is our saviour and our king. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you afresh for Jesus. We thank you for what he has done for us, that he willingly walk towards the cross to die for us so that all of our wrongs, our sins may be forgiven. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace and forgiveness poured out on us. And we praise Jesus, our Saviour, but not just our Saviour, our King. We want to put him as King of our lives. We want to worship him in all sorts of ways, in everything we do and say, putting him first. Praising him with our voice, with our actions, with our wallets, with our lives. Lord, help us be extravagant in our worship of Jesus because Jesus is worth it. Lord, help us do that individually. Help us do it together as a church family. And help us do it because we love Jesus for what he has done for us. We pray that you'll work in us to keep growing in this. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we pray. Amen.